Health Matters with Karen Key. And a very good evening to you and welcome to this week's edition of Health Matters. On the show this evening, I'll be talking with gastroenterologist Dr. David Epstein. And with yesterday being World IBD Day, that's inflammatory bowel disease, the global campaign Join the Fight Against Autoimmune Diseases would like to shed some light on one specific IBD, Crohn's disease, and the impact it has on one's career and work life. Then I'll be joined on the line by Dr. Lydia Potas, Senior Lecturer in the Department of Speech, Language, Pathology and Audiology at the University of Pretoria, and we'll be talking about auditory processing disorder. Now, if you've been following the Oscar Pistorius trial, you would have heard last week about GAD, or Generalized Anxiety Disorder. Now, there's been much comment on social media sites, television and radio news channels, and in general conversations about this. And since the news broke, the South African Federation for Mental Health has received a flood of inquiries about this condition. So, to find out more, I'll be chatting with Barty Patel, National Director of the South African Federation for Mental Health. And finally this evening, I'll be joined by Professor Sylvester Chima of the College of Health Sciences at the University of KwaZulu-Natal. He'll be presenting a paper at the upcoming Africa Health Exhibition and Congress on managing clinical negligence and medical error in South African hospitals, implications for the National Health Insurance Scheme. And then just a reminder that there is now a list of available documents for Health Matters. Just go to the Facebook page, Health Matters on SAFM. And if you'd like any of them, post a message on Facebook. But please do remember to include your email address so I can send the documents to you. And if you don't have access to Facebook, drop me an email to healthmatters at safm.co.za and I'll send you the list so you can choose which of the documents you'd like to have. Well, that's the lineup for this evening. I do hope you'll stay with me and enjoy the show here on SAFM. Health Matters with Karen Key. A recent study conducted by Crohn's and Colitis UK and funded by AbbVie Pharmaceuticals revealed the disheartening outlook adopted by most inflammatory bowel disease sufferers when questioned about their perceived career prospects. 75% of respondents suffering from Crohn's disease, one of the two most common forms of IBD, agreed that the condition had negatively impacted their productivity in the past seven days, with 53% stating that it prevented them from reaching their full potential in the workplace. Well, to tell us more about Crohn's disease, I'm joined in studio this evening by gastroenterologist Dr. David Epstein. Dr. Epstein, welcome to the show. Good evening, Corin. I think before we begin, for those who aren't aware, what exactly is Crohn's disease? Okay. Crohn's disease is um, an autoimmune disease, which is characterized by inflammation of the gastrointestinal tract. Usually the small intestine and colon is involved. And the cause of this condition is unknown. Um, we do know that it has a number of components that make up the, the pattern and, and what causes it. These include uh, genetic factors, some environmental factors, and then some unique immune system problems that a patient may have. And these in combination would cause inflammation to their intestines and or colon. And this is something that can occur at any stage of your life. It's not something that you're born with. Correct. Um, we have patients that are diagnosed at six years of age, whereas others go through most of their life without any problems and then may only develop the condition at about 60 years of age or older. Now, what symptoms are there, especially for parents, if you have a young child? What should you be looking out for? Well, the symptoms can be quite vague and nonspecific. Um, in children, uh, failure to thrive is a common symptom. Um, poor weight gain and height um, would be noticed. Fatigue, abdominal cramps, diarrhea, um, those would be the most common symptoms. 
Now, people now develop Crohn's, and we're mentioning, talking here about IBD and your career. Now, why would this impact on somebody's work life? Um, it would impact on their work life in a number of ways. Um, firstly, just in terms of the symptoms, um, it can be difficult to, to um, work or study to one's full capacity if you've got active inflammatory bowel disease such as Crohn's disease. So symptoms like fatigue or stomach cramps that keep you awake at night or diarrhea um, are going to be a major problem um, in, in the work environment. And uh, we've also noticed that a lot of people will choose different careers because of their illness. For example, um, a, a job that involves traveling may be very difficult with someone who's got active Crohn's disease. So that's one example how it may um, affect uh, their career. And then just symptoms like diarrhea in a, in a work environment, in a crowded office environment, can be very difficult for a patient with Crohn's disease. Now this strikes me as something akin to a mental illness. Well, not that it's anywhere close to being the same thing, but in that people don't disclose this sort of thing. You'll go, people, so we've done a show here once before on bipolar, and we had a caller who said she would never tell anybody at work because she was terrified of getting fired or being sort of sidelined for promotion or whatever it is. Is it the same kind of feeling with somebody with Crohn's? Sure, I think it can be. Um, firstly, patients with Crohn's disease may outwardly appear normal, so they often uh, their condition is not understood by their employers or colleagues. Um, secondly, symptoms like diarrhea are very embarrassing, um, and, and therefore disclosure to colleagues or to HR personnel may not occur because of um, the embarrassment or shame about um, these symptoms. What about treatment? Well, there's a variety of treatments and in the majority of patients, uh, treatment works very effectively and can reduce the symptoms and, and uh, render people very functional. But there are patients who will battle um, despite treatments with ongoing symptoms and for these smaller group of patients, it becomes very challenging to, to uh, manage them in their work environments and allow them to achieve their full potential. Would diet play any role in alleviating some of these of the symptoms at all? Um, Crohn's is not a dietary illness, so it can't be cured by diet. But diet does play an important role in controlling some of the symptoms. Um, and so, yes, it, it is important. Before we came on air, you mentioned that there was an alarming number now of autoimmune conditions, one of which is Crohn's. Yes, that's correct. Um, I think over 100 autoimmune conditions have now been described, and these range from very simple conditions such as thyroid disease, which are very easily managed, to more um, serious autoimmune conditions like uh, lupus or SLE, Crohn's disease, multiple sclerosis would be examples of the more serious ones. The thing about autoimmune conditions, though, unfortunately, is that there is no cure. It's just a case of management and, and treatment to sort of try and alleviate the symptoms. That's, to a degree. That's correct. There are very few. There are some very rare autoimmune conditions that potentially can be cured, but the vast majority cannot and require lifelong therapy. And the future ahead for this, I mean, is there research going on into Crohn's? Do you know? Yes, there's a lot of research being done around the world and in South Africa as well into Crohn's disease. Um, and we always tell people the future is bright. There are a lot of new drugs coming onto the market. Our understanding of these illnesses is improving. And uh, we anticipate that, uh, you know, with, with better treatments and better understanding, uh, the disease will be far better controlled than it is at present. Interestingly, also before we came on air, we were discussing biologics because I know those from people with rheumatoid arthritis, and that's been this revolutionary treatment for people with RA. And you were telling me that you, in some cases you can actually use biologics 
in certain cases for, for some patients with Crohn's. Definitely. Yeah. Biologics are an important um, component of our armamentarium in treating these diseases. Um, yes, they're powerful drugs. They come with um, some amazing advantages in terms of healing patients with Crohn's disease, um, but obviously do have other issues which we have to address when putting patients on these drugs. So they, they, they have to be used carefully but, uh, and appropriately. Yeah, because you know, biologics known as sort of almost like the miracle drug, but it's not for everybody. As you said, you have to be assessed. So you know, don't get all happy because you think, oh, I can take biologics. Well, you might be able to, but it's not everybody. Correct. I think each patient needs to be assessed um, individually. It's not a one size fits all in terms of treating Crohn's disease, and each patient needs to be assessed individually. What are the sort of figures, if you know, in South Africa for people with Crohn's? How how prevalent is it here? We we don't have great data. Um, there were some studies conducted about thirty or forty years ago. Um, but what we do have is a South African Inflammatory Bowel Disease Registry, which is a project I'm involved in. And just from the uh, numbers in our practice, which is centered around the Crudescure Hospital Inflammatory Bowel, di Bowel Disease Clinic and a few private practices, we have about 2,300 patients with either Crohn's disease or coli uh, ulcerative colitis. In that's the, in the Cape. Yeah. In the Cape. Wow. And that's probably only the tip of the iceberg. There are probably a lot more in, in the Cape and, and in the rest of the country. And the advantage of the registry? Well, I think we are seeing some patterns emerge on um, patients getting these illnesses. Um, so it's giving us some clues as to what causes the illness. So, for example, we're seeing um, increasing number of black patients with both Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, which was unheard of 30, 40 years ago. And when we look at those patients, they um, are patients who uh, live in sort of middle-class suburbs, uh, attend university, are professionals, have always lived in Cape Town. So something in their environmental sort of upbringing um, it predisposes them to, to Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. It's almost starting to sound like a lifestyle illness, almost sort of, you know, a westernized diet lifestyle type thing. Definitely. We're seeing the same situation in Asia, so in China and uh, Korea, with rapid urbanization and people moving to cities, more and more patients developing inflammatory bowel disease. Gosh, that's almost like we should be going back to the times when we lived more simply and ate more simply rather than all this fabulous sort of westernized lifestyle with all the westernized food and everything else. And uh, maybe the figures would go down a bit. Um, well, I think that's true. I mean, we have done some studies in Cape Town and elsewhere around the world that shows that um, sort of parasitic infections with worms um, seems to protect you against developing things like inflammatory bowel disease. So, you know, a more rural environment, uh, you know, less, less hygienic conditions seem in a way to protect some people from, from getting this illness. So definitely a disease of modern living. Gosh, it's almost like a catch-22. You know, you're trying to improve yourself, not have the worm problem, and now we're causing something else. That's 100% correct. Gosh, <laughs> you can't seem to win here. <laughs> Now, do you, are you looking for people who, if they have this condition, to join the registry, or how do they get on this thing? Yes, I mean, it would be and what do they get out of being on it? Basically? Right. Okay. So, um, firstly, if people wanted to join the registry, um, we have uh, they can do it via two websites: either the South African Gastroenterology um, Society website, which is www.sages.co.za, and then. Um, via my own website has an IBD registry tab which people can um, go to and that's www.gastro-enterology.co.za and there's an IBD registry uh, tab on that website. And patients can self-register 
and uh, we'd collect their data. Obviously, they have to give consent for their data to be collected. And then we have a number of forums where patients can attend and also join our registry. So in September, we're having a large patient meeting at the ICC in conjunction with our annual gastroenterology meeting. That's on the 6th of September, 2014. And obviously, from the registry, would they get information and they'd be able to do sort of do you support group type things or anything like that? Correct. We do run support groups and we do have patient meetings which are closely related to the registry. But the registry primarily is to collect data, to look for patterns um, in the disease, who's getting the disease, how long it takes them to get diagnosed. We've, from some of our registry data, we see that the average Crohn's patient takes almost two and a half years from onset of symptoms to, to get diagnosed. So it helps us also um, assess you know, the quality of care that we're offering and awareness about the disease in the community. I think that's one of the problems with autoimmune d conditions is that you, you will have one symptom this week and something else next week and you never quite get the same thing all the time. Correct. I think with a lot of autoimmune conditions, the disease tends to fluctuate and it can start quite insidiously um, and fluctuate during its course and that does make it difficult in terms of diagnosis. Gosh, well, hopefully we'll be getting a handle on these autoimmune conditions. As you said, there is this join the fight against autoimmune diseases, and we all need to join the fight, and hopefully we'll get there in the end, but it's going to take a while. That's right. I think so. Thank you very much indeed for joining me on the show this evening. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Dr. David Epstein is a gastroenterologist in private practice at the Vincent Pilotti Hospital in Cape Town. The Join the Fight Against Autoimmune Diseases campaign is a global initiative by AbbVie that seeks to help raise awareness of autoimmune diseases and to unite and support sufferers. For more information about the campaign and how you can get involved, you can contact Dean Kravitz on 011 326 3428 or 083-768-1433. One four double three, and then Dr. Epstein gave you two websites. If you'd like to register on their website, it's www.sages.sages.co.za or gastro-enterology.co.za. And don't worry if you've missed any of those contact details. You can always drop me a mail at healthmatters@safm.co.za, and I will send you anything you need to know. Health Matters with Karen Key. Children suffering with an auditory processing disorder can't process the information they hear in the same way as others because their ears and their brain don't fully coordinate. Something adversely affects the way the brain recognizes and interprets sounds, most notably the sounds composing speech. Well, to tell us more, I'm joined by Dr. Lydia Potter, Senior Lecturer in the Department of Speech, Language, Pathology and Audiology at the University of Pretoria. Dr. Potter, good evening. Welcome to the show. Good evening. It's such a privilege to be back on the show with you. Yes, Thank you so much. Nice to chat with you again. And just could we just, I gave a very brief explanation of what auditory processing disorder is, but could you explain it in more detail for the listeners? Okay. One can actually say is, uh, what we do with what we hear. So um, auditory processing is actually what happens when your brain recognizes and interprets the sounds around you. So it's actually uh, the whole process of processing or interpreta interpretation of any information. So uh, auditory processing disorder might then be any breakdown in the child's auditory abilities that results in diminished learning through hearing, even though the hearing sensitivity is actually normal. How do people actually recognize this? How can you detect APD? Um, we actually only diagnose children from the age of seven years and up. And the reason for that being is because neuromaturation is still taking place from after birth to up to the age of seven, 
on neuromaturation of the auditory processing skills actually taking place up to the age of 12. So if we diagnose children even uh, before the age of 7, we might be diagnosing actually kind of a a delayed maturational approach. But there are certain things that one can be on the lookout, especially on the school-going child. Um, Specific things is that the children might have problems to focus on auditory information, especially in the presence of background noise. They might also appear to be not paying attention or daydreaming um, and um, have trouble understanding stories read aloud or even um, understanding and following um, instructions. They might appear to have a latency of response or delayed response even to some question. They might even misunderstand homework assignments or fail to follow specific directions. Uh, um, it can sometimes even happen that these children don't tend to do their homework because they, they forget the instructions that was given in class. The problem with something like this, though, Dr. Potas, is that it runs the risk of the child being diagnosed with some sort of behavioral problem. Yeah, that can happen. As these children um, sometimes get the feeling that they're losing out on information within the classroom, they tend to have appear to be having behavioral problems. And that is why it's so important for us to get them a diagnosis as early as possible. As it, in the end, we, you can have a child with specific behavioral problems as a result of not being as able to cope academically within the classroom situation. That is, that is why we focus such a lot also on the functioning in terms of things like reading and spelling. Because you can imagine the teacher's frustration as well with a child who's sort of constantly staring out the window or, as you said, daydreaming and not really paying attention. And, you know, and the teacher could get frustrated and think there's something else wrong with the child. And I don't think this is automatically their first thought that there might be an auditory processing disorder. Yeah, that is quite a big problem that we have um, most of these days is um, that we still have a lot of ignorance or not people not having enough information about auditory processing causing these children not to be perhaps sitting still in class fidgety and not paying attention the way that that they actually should do. And that is why auditory processing sometimes also gets mistaken as um, attention deficit, Mm. hyperactivity disorder or attention deficit disorder. Is this something that uh, your department possibly would would look at in sort of almost involving the teachers and, and training them to to, re- to recognize these symptoms in a child? Oh, you know, when we evaluate children, and I think I speak for all private audiologists or audiologists working at universities and hospitals, we include the, the, the parents, as, um, the parents actually our main member of the team, but the teachers as well. So we get the important information that we need from the teachers. But then on the other hand, we also try and get information out there to, to teachers as well, um, with specifically then universities going to schools or visiting schools and giving these information and training to, to teachers so that they realize that a child's reading, spelling problems that they can have can also be the result of an auditory processing disorder specifically. So if a parent has a child that has possibly the teachers or somebody at the school has said to them, look, I think your child has got ADD or something, maybe before you put them on any medication, possibly have them checked for for auditory processing disorder before you go down the route of ADD. Yeah. Typically, we we, um, love to see these children at their school-going age, when they start in grade one or grade two, and the teacher's 
start to pick up some problems. We uh, Usually the one big thing that we must rule out is the presence of a hearing loss. And if we've ruled that out and we still find that the problem is persisting, it's very important to um, do an auditory processing evaluation. What is that and actually? Are, Sorry, carry on. No, that's fine. There are specific things that we look out then for, for the difference between um, auditory processing and ADHD that can put us on the, on the route to a specific diagnosis. What does the testing involve? Usually um, the first person that we refer to, actually the only person that's allowed to uh, diagnose auditory processing disorders um, are the audiologists. And we usually refer them to a speech-language therapist for the more um, language-related aspects. And we can also include a psychologist for the behavioral aspects. But the testing with the um, audiologist usually um, includes testing of the peripheral hearing system, and that will then be the auditory system as it is in terms of the functioning and determining if this child really can hear. And then apart from that, we are also focusing or having a specific test battery focusing on the child's auditory processing abilities. That will include different skills like being able to discriminate between sounds and being able to localize sounds being able to detect and be aware of sounds in the presence of background noise. So these are, or there are different skills that we then evaluate as part of um, a comprehensive test battery to be able to diagnose these children. We also include information that we obtain from teachers in terms of the functioning at, in, in the school um, and as well as in terms of the listening behavior um, uh, uh, stated by parents, so usually we have some very nice questionnaires that we can use to, for parents to fill in so that we can get just get all that background information together in, and make a complete diagnosis. Does auditory processing disorder ever affect a child's speech or language ability? Yes, yes, um, definitely. It can affect a child's speech and language development um, before the age of seven. Um, if a child mishears a word or doesn't always hear a word, um, say, for example, in the case that is one of the causes of auditory processing disorders is something like recurrent otitis media, they might go then through a period of auditory deprivation as a result of this recurrent otitis media and then the, the consistent input of the sounds or the, the information that they're receiving is not the same as in the time when they do not have the otitis media. So that can definitely then have an influence on the child's speech production and his language, the development of his language skills, as we all know that listening skills are actually the prerequisite for the development of speech and language. You mentioned earlier that your parents are part of the team. What can parents do to help the children at this point? I think in terms of um, helping children at this point is, First, to, to identify your child with an auditory processing disorder, a possible auditory processing disorder. As we do not really diagnose these children before the age of seven, it doesn't mean that we do not identify children who might be at risk. So any child with a speech and language delay or problems in terms of speech and language development should be seen by a speech-language therapist and they must also focus on the child's listening skills just to make sure if the, the, the child is on par with um, development. And if not, 
to support the child's maturation of these listening skills in order to um, avoid the development of a kind of a full-blown auditory processing problem. In terms of the older children, there are some specific things that parents can do in, in order to help their children. Um, things like getting them to focus um, um, on specific the primary signal and, and things that can specifically be done is preferential seating in classroom so that perhaps they sit closer to the teacher and um, especially when working at home, reducing background noise, repetition or rephrasing of information, um, use of clear, concise language, additional visual cues, and even um, having um, discussions with the teacher in terms of allowance of extra processing time because these children sometimes need some time for um, extra processing and as well include assistive technologies like FM system. Is this something that gets better as the child grows older and they learn to deal with it better? The big thing about that is, is the children um, really learn or they get to comp- compensate for this. It's, it's not always that it's able for them to outgrow this. Um, it's just that they learn to cope with it quite better. If it's due to a maturational problem that occurred, um, perhaps due to the fact that they have recurrent otitis media, they might outgrow this. But some of them tend to still have problems functioning within background noise, and they just get to compensate for that um, better with time. Is this, um, obviously would imagine that the school as well would need to be involved because a, a large part of the child's time is going to be spent in the classroom and the teacher would need the right tools to be able to deal with children like this. Yes, yes, no, definitely. And that is why we always like to include the teacher as part of the team because um, things like reducing background noise within the classroom, trying to use sound-absorbing materials to reduce echoes and noise within the classroom or to include more visual aids for topics being discussed or pre-teaching or post-teaching vocabulary, speaking more slowly, emphasizing most important words and pausing enough for the child to catch up. So, Or even things like getting the child's attention before speaking and repeating directions and allow the child to perhaps use a tape recorder or a peer, um, a note-taker. So these are all the things that's, um, that might um, support such a child within the classroom. And it's very important for us that the teachers be involved in the whole comprehensive intervention of these children. And as an adult, I mean, this does not mean that, <clears throat> excuse me, that, that as an adult you wouldn't be able to lead a very productive, full, meaningful life. I mean, because, you, as you said, you know, they would be able to deal with it. And um, hopefully by the time they reach adulthood and working life, that they would be able to cope. How easy yes. is it for these people to most, cope in a working environment? Um, most of these people tend to cope quite well. They um, really get to use some more um, compensatory strategies they learn to, they actually get to know the situations in, in which they might be um, having problems and then asking for clarification or repetition. So people actually, or the children actually learn how to advocate for themselves. So by the time that they reach adulthood, they are um, uh, able to, to cope with the situation. So it seems to take a team to, to resolve this, well, not yes. to, to deal with it, basically. Yes, and we usually start off with the audiologist testing the hearing skills or the hearing abilities at first 
just to rule out any kind of hearing loss and um, then specifically testing for auditory processing disorders and then also referring, always referring to a speech-language therapist for the more language-related aspects. And then part of the team, one can get your educational psychologist for behavioral aspects as well as the um, parents and the teachers. And if um, one thing that there might be a bigger problem, like uh, aspects like sensory integration, also including all the other senses, will one can refer to an occupational therapist. So as we said right at the very beginning, if your child is having problems concentrating or there's possibly been a, a thought about ADD or something, before we get there, maybe they should have the child checked by an, by an audiologist just to rule out any possibility of um, APD. I think that would be a good idea, especially when teachers start complaining that the child is struggling to, re- to start reading or having problems with spelling writing, all those might be an an early indication that the child might have an auditory processing problem. And the big thing is that while it's only picked up at school age is when the child starts functioning within a classroom situation with background noise, they tend to start having problems. At home, when they're still young, under the age of six, it's still in a one-to-one situation. It's not so easy to um, pick them up in terms of having problems with auditory processing. Well, possibly there's parents sitting out there thinking, gosh, that's what it is. And hopefully they tomorrow will pop along and have their child assessed and hopefully we would help have helped them out of a very concerning time, not knowing what to do. So, Dr. Potas, thank you very much indeed for joining us once again. I look forward to chatting with you again next time. Thank you so much. It was a privilege. Thank you for your time. Dr. Lydia Potas is a senior lecturer in the Department of Speech, Language, Pathology and Audiology at the University of Pretoria. For more information, you can contact the Speech, Language, Hearing Association on 86 or take a look at the website www.saslha.co.za. Government's official plans for the presidential inauguration taking place on the 24th of May 2014 in the Nelson Mandela Amphitheatre at the Union Buildings are underway. All South Africans are encouraged to be part of this momentous occasion in our country, remembering that we are still celebrating 20 years of democracy and the inauguration is the culmination of those 20 years and comes after another peaceful election. Those who cannot attend will be able to follow proceedings on television and radio or at 47 public viewing areas in the provinces. SAFM will be broadcasting the inauguration of the President on Saturday and at this stage it's envisioned that the broadcast will be taking place from about 10am to 1 o'clock. Health Matters with Karen Key. Social media sites, television and radio news channels and general conversations are buzzing on the topic of the latest breaking news regarding the Oscar Pistorius trial. Oscar has been ordered by the court to go for psychiatric evaluation after the defence's expert psychiatrist Dr. Meryl Forster testified that she had diagnosed Oscar with General Anxiety Disorder, or GAD. Now, since the news broke, the South African Federation for Mental Health has received a flood of telephone calls and emails from members of the public and other organisations wanting to learn more about this condition. So, to tell us more, I'm joined this evening by Barty Patel, National Director of the South African Federation for Mental Health. Barty, good evening. Welcome to the show. Good evening, Karen, and thank you for inviting me. The one thing about this GAD that's come out now during the Oscar Pistorius trial if anything good can come out of it, is the fact that it has raised awareness of mental health and has got people talking. And it's one of those things that people normally don't want to talk about. 
Very uh, much so, Karen. Um, you know, mental health is not a very popular issue, and people shy away from discussing their mental health status or conditions that they might experience. And, you know, as the Federation, we've always struggled. Although we create a lot of awareness out there, we find it that, you know, people shy away from the material that we do produce um, and, and are not forthcoming to learn about the mental health conditions that, you know, we should be aware of. So perhaps this has been a good start, that it's made people aware that there are mental health conditions out there and we need to talk about them, we need to find out more because there are a large majority of people in South Africa do have some form or other of anxiety perhaps or a mental condition and they tend to keep it hidden because there's a lot of stigma and they don't want to talk about this and disclose this. Karen, you know, according to recent statistics, one in four in South Africa would have a mental health condition at some point in their life. So, you know, we, it, it is a very serious matter that needs a lot of attention. Um, by 2020, they uh, are estimating that um, mental health will be a leading cause of disability. So it is vital that we all understand um, what we are feeling and, you know, to have a diagnosis or to have an assessment to confirm, is it a mental health condition? Would I require treatment? And how do I access that treatment? That is very important, though, Barty, because a lot of people, since this general generalized anxiety disorder came about, that came into the public eye, if you like, a lot of people are saying, oh, my goodness, maybe I've got that, and sort of almost self-diagnosing themselves. But they really shouldn't be doing that. If you are concerned, your first port of call is to go and speak to a professional. Very much so. Um, you know, it, it is very positive to identify that there is a condition and, you know, not knowing what it is is important in a sense that you are aware that something is wrong and by going out and seeking help, it is the first step towards your treatment. So let's get down to this generalized anxiety disorder. What exactly is that? Well, generalized anxiety disorder is a long-term mental health condition and it causes a person to feel anxious about a wide range of situations and issues. Um, you're not really worried about one specific event. You know, we all experience anxiety at some point in our life, um, be it that you are going for a job interview or you are studying towards examinations. Um, and during these times, we all feel a bit, you know, it, it, you do have a sense of anxiety. However, when a person worries and, and worries continuously, um, that feeling of anxiety doesn't go away. Then it is uh, considered an anxiety disorder. Um, and sometimes, you know, you, you struggle to even relax, even though there are, there aren't issues that you should be worrying about. So something like generalized anxiety disorder, is it can cause both psychological and physical symptoms as well, and that's not going to be the same in any two people? No, definitely not. Um, you know, it's not exactly known what causes generalized anxiety disorder. However, you know, we find that um, there are physical symptoms and there are psychological symptoms, yes. So and the cause of this also, it could be a combination of several factors? Most likely, yes. Now, what sort of things would, the, would those factors be, do you think? Um, well, you know, if you find um, that you are basically, um, you know, 
genetic. It can be genetic that, you know, if there's someone in your family that has um, a mental health condition, uh, you're more likely to have a similar condition. And if there's history of traumatic incidences in your life, if, if there's child abuse or uh, domestic violence, um, bullying in schools, you would find that, you know, as you grow older, the anxiety disorder persists. Um, there's also long-term health conditions like arthritis um, and even having a, a history of drug and alcohol misuse. Now, something like there's also, I was reading somewhere that there's an, it can also be caused by an imbalance of the brain chemicals, the serotonin and noradrenaline. Now, something like that, this is why we mentioned earlier that if you are feeling that you possibly need to speak to a professional, the thing with, with generalized anxiety disorder, I'm assuming, Barty, please correct me if I'm wrong, but something like this could be, you could be assisted with medication. It can be managed. Most definitely. Um, you know, once you have been diagnosed, um, the psychologist or psychiatrist will give you an option of treatment methods. Um, and once on that treatment, you would be able to manage the symptoms and then eventually be able to lead a normal, fulfilled life. And the, the, let's just talk about the South African Federation for Mental Health because this is what you, you do there every day, all day, is trying to raise awareness to get rid of the stigma of mental health. Talk to me a little bit about the work that you do. Well, the Federation is a national body, and we are in a non-profit organization. We are constituted. That means we have 17 mental health societies throughout the nine provinces. And in these organizations, you can walk into the organizations and seek advice and assistance in terms of service delivery. But as a national body, we focus um, a lot of our attention on creating awareness because it is a known fact that, you know, there is a lot of stigma and discrimination out there. We are trying to make mental health a very popular topic, um, giving people uh, advice in terms of what are the signs, symptoms of the various mental health conditions, and then also to promote um, access to treatment so that, you know, even in rural communities or even if you're not part of a medical aid, you can still access mental health services at your general clinics, um, general hospitals. Um, by creating some of this awareness, we also lobby to make sure, we lobby government to make sure that services do become available. And, you know, what is exciting is that we've never had a policy around mental health in our country. Um, we look to the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities to, to give us guidance in terms of how to develop services for people with mental health conditions. And as recent as last year, um, the Department of Health has um, in, approved a policy, a mental health policy framework which needs to be implemented at provinces. So every province has been obliged or is obliged to develop a plan of action in terms of developing services at grassroots level for mental health services. And the reason why I'm saying this is that, you know, if you walk into your local clinics, you can ask for a psychologist or a psychiatrist or a mental health professional where, who can give you advice in terms of 
um, you know, what, what are your symptoms, what, what are the facts around your mental health condition, but also to be able to be assessed in your community so you don't have to go to great lengths in accessing treatment or uh, knowledge around mental health. One of my biggest concerns as far as mental health is concerned, though, Barty, is the fact that so many people are still too afraid to disclose this at work because they feel that they, it will become a problem there. And, and are, we, are we going to ever see this getting any better? Well, yes, I think it will. You know, one has to be positive and there has to be hope that, you know, very much, uh, you know, awareness can, can bring about a change in the way you and I look at the mental health condition. Um, it's very important that, you know, we are able to support. If we have the, the knowledge with us, we would be able to provide adequate support and assistance to be able to reach out to your fellow men, um, you know, be it a colleague at work, be it the person you sit next to when you're sitting in a bus or a taxi um, or on your way to work. So basically it's about um, understanding conditions, understanding that, a person who has a mental illness is not really uh, a danger to you, but he is your fellow man and he needs additional support. Um, so, and how you can reach out to provide that support to make that person's life much more easier. That was something, um, that, sorry, just getting back to you, you said that they are not a danger to you, they are just a fellow human being. That is something else that concerned me that came out during this trial, was that there was quite a lot made during the trial of the fact that he was dangerous, but then it was added if he had a gun. And I think people just hear that first part, you know, he could be dangerous, and they don't hear the second bit of the qualification. And it, we need to make that very clear, <clears throat> that somebody with a condition like, like for example, generalized anxiety disorder is not a, a danger to you generally? Well, yeah, you, you know, one can never be a danger to anybody un unless a situation mm. arises. Mm. So, you know, you talk about either we freeze or, you know, it's flight or freeze. Um, so, so basically a, a situation will present itself and um, one doesn't know how you're going to react until it happens. Um, but you know, for me, the stigma and discrimination is more around because mental illness is not a visible condition um, or a disability or an illness, um, people don't know, you know, if, you, if, if, uh, if I had to say I have a mental illness, people are afraid that I may react differently mm. until you understand the symptoms and what are the triggers um, that will lead to me reacting in a different way. I mean, let's look at HIV and AIDS. It was such a, there was so much of stigma and discrimination until there was a huge campaign and an awareness around um, the illness itself. And today, even though you have HIV and AIDS, you can still be part of society. You don't have to be ostracized. You're not a danger in society. And that comes with a lot of knowledge around the illness. So us as the general public also need to take responsibility here as well for being for making ourselves aware and for not being people that shy away from somebody with a mental health issue. But we need to make us, we need to learn, we need to actually educate ourselves. We do. I mean, you know, something like generalized anxiety disorder would never have become as, uh, you know, there wouldn't be so much need for information around mm. it unless it becomes a high-profile case that is being, you know, 
managed in, 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 in the open public domain. Um, and because we have this opportunity, people are willing to learn. So we should always, I mean, yeah, that's part of the responsibility for every human being to understand the different mental health conditions. I mean, if we look at the statistics again, like I say, one in mm. four. So in a family, someone would have, in a family of four, someone is more likely, one member is more likely to have a mental illness. Therefore, everyone has that responsibility to learn about mental health conditions. Well, if anything else that's good that's come out of this trial is the fact that we are now talking more about mental health issues. So that's at least something that's positive for the general public that's come out of this trial. Well, that's the federation a lot. You know, a lot of our effort goes into creating that awareness. And, you know, the more people come forward and ask the questions, that is why we are very excited about it, because more people are getting familiar with the terminology around mental health illnesses and conditions and how to approach people who have a mental illness. Because once we have a positive uh, reaction towards mental health, we would be able to eradicate a lot of the stigma and discrimination, and also reduce the burden. Um, you know, mental illness can, can, is, is a costly affair because if you're looking at psychological assessment and you're looking at, you know, time away from work in terms of therapy, if more and more people are getting assessed and getting treated, less people would be away from work, uh, more people would be productive, and therefore the cost and effectiveness of understanding mental health conditions will bring about a reduction in the burden. Barty, thank you very much indeed for joining us this evening and for explaining a lot more than hopefully we knew at the beginning. And um, hopefully this won't be the last time you and I chat. Definitely so. Thank, thank you, you very much. Thank you for your time. Good night to you. Barty Patel is the National Director of the South African Federation for Mental Health. And for more information, you can contact the Federation on 11 one eight five two or take a look at their website www.safmh.org. Now I also have a fact sheet on generalized anxiety disorder as well as a list of organizations around the country with contact numbers if you'd like that. So if you want me to send you that you could email me on healthmatters at safm.co.za and I'll send you the fact sheet as well as all the contact numbers. Health Matters with Karen Key. The fourth, fourth edition of the Africa Health Exhibition and Congress is scheduled to take place at the Gallagher Convention Centre in Johannesburg from the 29th to the 31st of May. And organisers are gearing up to host yet another robust gathering of healthcare professionals and medical experts from around the world. And they'll be engaging in extensive discussions, debate and networking. Professor Sylvester Chima of the College of Health Sciences at the University of KwaZulu-Natal will be presenting a paper entitled Managing Clinical Negligence and Medical Error in South African Hospitals, Implications for the National Health Insurance Scheme. And he joins me on the line now. Professor Chima, good evening. Welcome to the show. Good evening. Interesting topic for your paper. Tell me more. Well, uh, one of the things that you frequently see in the papers, especially South African papers where they are reported, is the incidence of people like swabs being left in the abdomen and, you know, people suing the health department because of, you know, uh, you know alleged negligence by healthcare professionals. And uh, one of the problems that we have in our own environment in Africa, including South Africa, is the fact that the accurate statistics for the instance of medical negligence or clinical negligence is actually not available. However, it is a condition that will occur 
you know, regularly in the medical practice field. Now, when we talk about medical negligence or clinical negligence, what we are talking about is when a healthcare professional practices below that standard that is expected of a healthcare professional in that particular field. And this could occur, for example, you were talked about uh, earlier on, you have people speak, speakers, you know, you know, talking about Crohn's disease and others talking about mental illness. Well, when these situations are misdiagnosed, when there is a delay in the diagnosis, when, you know, there is a wrong diagnosis or wrong treatment applied to these kind of situations, then if this delay or misdiagnosis leads to injury or causes more harm, then this arises to the level of negligence. And what usually happens is that when negligence occurs, the patient who has been affected will, you know, sue the hospital or the health department and claim for damages. And these damages are paid in the sum, in the, in, 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 in a way of manner of uh, money. And then what this does, it depletes the amount of money that's available to provide regular medical services. So what we are saying is that in terms of the national health insurance scheme, for a proper and robust risk management system for the national health insurance scheme, we also have to make plans for management of incidents of medical negligence and critical negligence during care. Now, that's one aspect of it in terms of make, you know, making plans. Uh, the second part of it is that we have to train up healthcare professionals by providing courses such as those that are being provided at Africa Health. Now, Africa Health, we have 14 uh, CPD or Continuing Professional Development uh, courses, which is, you know, helps to educate healthcare professionals. It helps to improve their skills and therefore somehow decreases the incidence of negligence generally. The only other, I mean, I was, I was reading some information that was saying that in, in the UK, they've introduced something called the Clinical Negligence Scheme for Trusts, and that assists in managing medical negligence claims. And what was interesting about reading about that was the fact that they were saying that a lot of the claims were inflated by excessive lawyers' fees. Yes, that is actually one of the problems. You see, the, when we talk about somebody, you know, who has been, for example, uh, injured in, during medical care, if negligence is, is, is you know, a cause or is reported, then that person will hire a lawyer. Now, the health department will also hire a lawyer to try and defend the case. And then they will hire expert witnesses. As you can see in Oscar's case, you can see how mm-hmm. many expert witnesses have been called. Each of these people have to be paid a certain fee. Okay, so it is these fees that are paid to both lawyers, expert lawyers, expert witnesses, and all that adversarial component of the management of the, you know, trying to find out what is the right way to compensate this person or whether negligence has actually occurred. This is what increases the cost of the negligence of, 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 uh, of the, you know, um, this is the, what increases the cost of trying to manage the issues of neg- negligence. So what the UK did when they found out, because at a certain point in the 1980s and 1990s, they found out that the system was absorbing almost 20 billion pounds of money that was supposed to be used for regular medical services were being used to pay out these negligence claims. Because what will happen is that in regular medical practice, like every other thing, errors will occur. And errors will occur, and these have to be compensated in accordance with the law, according to respect of human rights, and so on and so forth. So because of this, now when you hire lawyers, you have to pay a lot more. When you hire expert witnesses, you have to. So they have to take it out of the court system, out of the adversarial court system, and try to create a scheme, what is called the Clinical Negligence Scheme for Trust. Uh, trust are the hospital trust that they have in the U.K., 
So they put out certain money aside, and instead of the every litigant or every person who has a complaint having to go through hiring a lawyer and the state having to defend them by hiring their own lawyers, then individuals, you know, I mean, a board meets and they decide that whether negligence has occurred or not, and then the individuals are compensated within the system, and this helps to reduce the cost of the litigation and the adversarial process. So uh, this is a, some form, form of a no-fault scheme which is one of the things that we probably need to introduce in South Africa. In other words, we know that these errors do occur. For example, the Guaten Health Department is reporting, you know, uh, you know cost of about 3.7 billion rand that have been paid or has been paid out or estimated to be paid out because of negligence claims. Uh, in KZN, we have about 2 billion, you know, rand that's being estimated to be paid out in terms of negligence claims. So now, and all this associated with lawyers' costs and legal costs. So if we have something like a no-fault scheme, similar to what we have in the road accident scheme, where, you know, we have eliminated going to court and things like that, then individuals who have been injured, in a, you know, in the healthcare practice can easily be compensated and then reduce the cost of having to pay expert witnesses and going through the litigation process. And this is one of the things, one of the ways of managing the clinical negligence, uh, you know, incidents in healthcare practice. Now, I mentioned that you're going to be delivering this paper at the African Health Exhibition and Congress uh, from the 29th to the 31st at the Gallagher Convention Centre. Is this open to the public or is this a professional convention only? Okay, the Africa Health Congress is the, this is the fourth uh, year that Informal uh-huh. Health Science Exhibition is hosting it and is going to be holding at Gallagher Convention Centre, like you rightly said. It is open to the public. Now, but we are encouraging healthcare professionals like nurses, physiotherapists, and all kinds of, you know, general practitioners and all manner of healthcare professionals to come in and see there will be about 400 exhibitors from all over the world, from China, from Brazil, you know, bringing in their new equipment. There will be a training village for the, for the public, for example, where specialists can, you know, people can see new techniques being applied. Um, we are expecting about... Uh, uh, 5,000 attendees, and then that includes general public students and anybody who's interested in healthcare practice. You will see new equipment, you will see, you can ask questions, you can attend 14 accredited conferences, which are basically help, uh, designed to help to improve the skills of healthcare practitioners. Basically, by improving their skills, we then you know, decrease the incident of what we're talking about when we talk about negligence. Because if they are better skilled, they have better equipment, they understand their new equipment, then there's, uh, you know, the chances of, you know, having medical negligence and medical errors is decreased. Professor Professor Chima, I'm so sorry to cut into you, but we will run out of time. I wish I could speak with you more. Hopefully we can catch up with you again after the conference and find out how it all went. Yes, it all... Thank you. uh, Okay, I was going to give you the website, but... uh, I'm going to give that out now. Okay. Thank you very much indeed for your time. Okay, thank you. Good night to you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Professor Sylvester Chima of the College of Health Sciences at the University of KwaZulu-Natal will be presenting a paper at the African Health Exhibition and Congress, which is taking place at Gallagher Convention Centre from the 29th to the 31st of May. For more information, you can take a look at www.africahealthexhibition.com. If you believe South Africa is stronger when we stand together, raise your hand. If you want your children to have a better life than you, Raise your hand. If you believe education is the way we build a prosperous and safe society, raise your hand. Our children's education is being uplifted all across South Africa by people just like you. How are you making a difference? Visit raiseyourhand.co.za to find out how you can be a part of the movement. Then share how you or your company have contributed 
using hashtag RaiseYourHand, and you could be featured on SABC TV and radio. It takes a nation to raise a child. Raise Your Hand is an SABC education initiative. And that's it for Health Matters for this week. I'm Karen Key. Thanks for joining me. And I'll be back with you again tomorrow evening just after nine with Time to Travel. Don't forget there's a list of available documents for Health Matters. If you'd like any, have a look at the Facebook page, Health Matters on SAFM, or drop me a mail on healthmatters at safm.co.za.